listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War The Philippines, the USA, War, Colonialism, and the Martial Arts Part 7 The Spanish-American War, which United States Secretary of State John Hay referred to as a splendid little war, was over. The Treaty of Paris had been signed by the United States and Spain, marking the end of the conflict, but not the end of conflict in general. In accord with the terms of the treaty, Cuba was a sovereign, independent nation. Well, on paper at least. Puerto Rico and Guam were straight up given to the United States. But the Philippines, well, we paid good cash money on the barrelhead for the Philippines and all the Filipinos, 20 million American dollars. But it turns out, get this, that the Filipino people didn't want themselves and their property to be the property of the United States. Well, the U.S. government realized that this was a situation that needed to be put right. Now, President William McKinley doesn't seem to have been a bad sort of man for his time. He was the last of a long line of U.S. presidents who were veterans of the Civil War. He had, in vast supply and lavish detail, seen and experienced violence and bloodshed. He truly wanted to avoid conflict with the Filipinos. But he also felt a higher calling. He seems to have genuinely believed that the assertion of a Northern European-derived culture and the Protestant worldview on what he perceived as poor, benighted, primitive brown people was his sacred Christian duty. And he certainly wasn't alone in this way of looking at the world. Many of you may have heard of Rudyard Kipling's famous line, quote, the white man's burden, unquote. This notorious phrase actually comes from a piece that Kipling specifically wrote asserting that it was the Christian duty of the Anglo-Saxon race to lift up the less advanced, less pale-skinned people of the world to a proper level of civilization. It was a piece of propaganda intended to try to salve consciences, to generate international enthusiasm for the takeover of the Philippines by America. McKinley announced a policy of benevolent assimilation of the Filipino people by American culture. After all, it had worked and was working so well with the Native Americans. More American troops were quickly sent for to reinforce those already in the Philippines, who, to McKinley's credit, got busy with the humanitarian work of improving infrastructure and sanitation in and around Manila. Emilio Aguinaldo, 
the leader of the Philippine independence movement and the newly named president of the First Philippine Republic, also preferred the thought of a peaceful solution. But he was adamant about independence. He was also a savvy, well-informed politician. He knew that there was significant political sentiment in the U.S. against an American empire. An organization called the Anti-Imperialist League had as its members highly influential people like Mark Twain, former President Grover Cleveland, social reformer Jane Addams, and billionaire Andrew Carnegie, who offered $20 million from his personal fortune to buy the Philippines back from the U.S. so that he could gift the Filipino people with independence. Aguinaldo knew that the Treaty of Paris was signed, but not yet ratified by the U.S. Senate, and he held out hope that it wouldn't be. Thus, he didn't move against the American occupation troops right away. But that didn't alter the tension that was steadily growing between these Americans and the Filipinos. Sooner or later, something was bound to set off the powder keg. That something happened on February 4th of 1899, when an American soldier shot a Filipino soldier that was one of several who appeared at night inside the American lines around Manila. The Second Battle of Manila, a real battle this time, quickly ensued. Now the Filipinos outnumbered and surrounded the Americans. As a matter of fact, they even coordinated with comrades inside Manila, who rose up to attack the invaders from behind. Now, there was no doubt of the valor of Filipino soldiers. Do you remember General Harry Lawton? A few episodes back, I told you how he led the American assault on the Cuban village outpost of El Caney in order to protect the right flank of the American assault on the San Juan Heights. Do you also recall that he had estimated to his commanding general that it would take about two hours to reduce the village, freeing up his troops to assist in the major assaults. Do you further recall that the battle for El Cane took much longer than the entire battle for San Juan Heights, and that I described the defiant Spanish defense of this fortified village as being heroic? Well, General Lawton, who had a front row seat to these heroics as the commanding officer, would later go on to describe the Filipino insurrectos as, quote, the bravest men I have ever seen, unquote. But despite their bravery, they were extremely poorly equipped and supplied. A very large number of them were armed only with bladed weapons, bolos. Hell, a great many of them were barefoot, they were no match for the industrial American war machine in a conventional head-to-head -head war. The modern and deadly warships of the U.S. Asiatic Fleet bombarded the Filipino positions from Manila Bay with their massive guns. U.S. soldiers executed an aggressive charge all along the lines, shouting with rebel yells, Kansas Jayhawk calls, and other stentorian war cries. The bravely manned but inadequate defenses of the Filipinos crumbled like sandcastles, and the surviving insurrectos were scattered into the wilderness. On this first day of fighting, 700 Filipino soldiers were killed, compared to only 44 for the Americans. The insurrectos sought refuge in the mountainous jungles, 
where the war was to eventually take on its true form, a guerrilla resistance against an occupying force. Now this was by no means to be a new experience for either side. The Filipinos had engaged in asymmetrical, irregular warfare off and on with the Spanish for centuries. The Americans were old hands at the opposite role from the conquest of the West from Native Americans. But with the very brief exceptions of Cuba and Puerto Rico, they had never fought in tropical rainforest and mountains like they encountered in the Philippines. They were also being asked to control a population of over 7 million people, with about 15,000 troops. Do the math. The American government sure didn't. The spring months brought the rainy season in the Philippines. Roads became rivers of mud. Malaria, cholera, and dysentery depleted American ranks until they were at less than 50% strength. Offensive operations were put on hold until a change of weather and the arrival of reinforcements. And guess who made up a large fraction of those reinforcements? That's right, our friends, the African-American Buffalo Soldiers. At least the ones who had survived combat, malaria, cholera, and yellow fever in Cuba. They had proven so reliable and effective in Cuba, despite what Teddy Roosevelt would later say, that the ever-pragmatic U.S. Army would send all of them to the Philippines. As a matter of fact, the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry were joined by two newly created units of black soldiers, the 48th and 49th Infantries. Upon landing in the Philippines, the Buffalo Soldiers were soon subjected to a sharply focused campaign of psychological warfare by the Filipino insurrectos. Leaflets and posters addressed to, quote, the colored American soldier, unquote, reminded them of the lynchings, the lack of true voting rights, and other abuses heaped on African Americans in the USA, and asking them if they wanted to be used by its military to subjugate more people of color. These written appeals also offered positions of substantial military rank to any African American soldier who switched sides and joined them. Of course, of all people, black Americans didn't need to be reminded of Jim Crow and other forms of discrimination back home. Slavery was only 33 years in the past. A few of the Buffalo soldiers were ex-slaves. Nearly all the rest were the children of slaves. The posters and leaflets weren't telling them anything they didn't already know. But still, this psychological campaign by the Filipinos was an inexpensive and intelligent ploy. Now I think it's valuable and interesting to think about the motivations and loyalties of the Buffalo Soldiers at this moment in history. What would drive such men to the almost unbelievable acts of courage that they had already demonstrated and would in the future continue to demonstrate? Black folks are people, with all the gifts, curses, and quirks of people everywhere and all through history. They are not genetically more predisposed to valor in combat than anyone else, and of course not less so predisposed either. They had very little reason, at least before serving, to feel much in the way of patriotism. Of course, one might say that hundreds of thousands of Americans had died in the war that set them free that they should feel and show gratitude. Well, I'm sure there was some of that, 
but it's important to remember that the Union would probably have had a much tougher time winning if hundreds of thousands of newly freed slaves had not taken up arms and joined the war effort. By the time Robert E. Lee handed his sword in surrender to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, at least 10% of the Union Army was black. Black soldiers killed in the Civil War numbered about 36,000. Again, about 10% of all the Union casualties. And that's not allowing for the fact that black soldiers weren't used in the first half of the war. As a matter of fact, 36,000 is roughly 1% of all African Americans at that time. One out of a hundred of them perished as soldiers in the Civil War. So their freedom wasn't gifted to them. They fought, bled, and died for it. In addition, they weren't set free from a foreign power. The enemy in that war had been other Americans. Southern Americans who were now back in the fold, even sometimes fighting alongside or even commanding the Buffalo Soldiers. Southern Americans who now, 33 years later, had managed to viciously roll back most of the hard-won freedoms that African Americans had enjoyed for the brief decade or so after the Civil War, by enacting Jim Crow laws and by conducting highly organized campaigns of terrorism against them. But as I mentioned a few episodes ago, service in the military, despite institutional racism within it, was still one of the most attractive options for young black men at this time. It frequently beat the hell out of digging ditches 12 hours a day, six or seven days a week, for low pay and in terrible conditions. Okay, well that might explain why they joined, but it still doesn't explain their exceptional courage. I suspect that their bravery stemmed from two major sources in particular. One was that each African-American soldier was keenly aware that the eyes of the world were upon him and his fellow Buffalo soldiers, often waiting gleefully for him and them to confirm and reinforce racial stereotypes with a show of cowardice or ineptitude. I'm reminded of the fact that among the most decorated American soldiers in World War II were sons of Japanese-American families, families who were all back home living within the field of fire of guard tower machine guns behind barbed wire in internment camps. These soldiers weren't even allowed to fight against the Japanese for fear that they would defect, so they were sent to North Africa and Europe to fight the Germans, where they served with gallantry. And I suspect that the other source of the courage of the Buffalo Soldiers was the same source alluded to by soldiers all through history. I can't count how many veterans have told me that they weren't heroes, but that they had served with heroes. You don't fight for yourself, and often not even for your country. You fight for the soldier, sailor, marine, or airman beside you. In any case, the leaflets and posters prepared for the Buffalo Soldiers by the Filipino insurrectos were powerful propaganda. And while the vast majority of them resisted any temptation to betray the country that had treated them so shabbily, a good number of them, in letters home, revealed that to varying degrees they were very uncomfortable with the way the U.S. was treating the Filipino people. But in 99.99% of cases, once more, they would grit their teeth, lock their heels, say, yes sir, and serve with valor and distinction in the Philippines. 
there is at least one story to tell about a man who went the other way and joined the Filipinos. But that will have to wait for one of the next several episodes. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain Podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com. <laughs>